to another episode of Full Metal RPG. I am your host, Ashley. We are on Season 3, Episode 3, and we are going to be covering historical gaming today. And I have with me my co-host, Richie Buzzkill. How are you doing on this fine evening, Richard? Well, the drugs are working, so I'm doing well. <laughs> the drugs work quick. Awesome. <laughs> All right. And today you will see two faces that may or may not be familiar to you or unfamiliar. I have uh, Alan Barr here as a guest. Alan, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Good. Awesome. We're happy to have you here. And also we have with us Tristan Zimmerman. I believe this is a first time that you've been on our show. Uh, it is. Thank you so much for having me. I yes. am delighted to be here. Awesome. We are happy to have you here. Cool. All right. Oh, well, hold on. I want to redo my introduction. That was terrible. This was way better. <laughs> I'd just like to just keep going. <laughs> I was like, all right, Alan, take two. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yes, our episode tonight is going to be um, about historical gaming. So, we'll get to that in a minute. But, real quick, as an introduction to what we're doing and why are we here, um, Richard, what have you been up to in the realm of gaming? Well, I. Finally, after many unlucky attempts, I finally got to play Troika. And you have to say it with the exclamation point because mm -hmm. it has an exclamation point. Uh, it's an interesting decision. Uh, I'm sure it is an actual real world word that I don't know the meaning of. I kind of think of it as uh, bonkers, bonzo, gonzo, uh, free. So look, I was playing a rhino man. I just oh. randomly rolled this. This this is one of these games where you roll everything. So mm -hmm. uh, Ro our good friend Rob, uh, Realm of Fire, he's been on here. Uh, uh, he was running a Troika game, and we had uh, a, a great crew off the Discord. I ran, it, we There's a website you can just randomly roll a character like real quick, and I just rolled the character, and I got Rhino Man. And I was like interesting okay all right and then somebody else was a a monkey purveyor he 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 had six monkeys that he was uh okay. toting around uh and then there was basically a, a navigator from dune he was like a a warped spaceman who was all like cancerous and then uh we had basically the least subtle ninja of all time that was covered in uh bells and rings and every time he moved he made he jingled and uh had a, had a great time uh it was a really simple easy to easy to throw together system uh mm -hmm. uh we got on a golden barge and got hijacked by a space void monster and then right, uh thank you do like you do and then went to a city on, that's on the side of a mountain that then we like f talked to some uh gremlins that helped us find the the guy that was taking over the city and then we the thing we were trying to do was get some rare earth for a plant duke and the plant duke uh died before we got back so da 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 da, -da. osr uh <laughs> <laughs> See, when you say, like, plant duke, because you started out with you being a rhino man, I was like, is he a plant? Or is he a duke of plants? Just like no. the monkey purveyor. I'm like, is he a monkey? Or no. is he a purveyor of no. monkeys? The plant duke was a sentient plant uh, who was the duke of the area. Uh -huh. And then the monkey purveyor was a human who purveyed monkeys. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it was kind of a, uh, I think almost like a Final Fantasy feel, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of like you've got lots of humans, but you also have really uh, interesting animal people, you know, that they're not calling out that they're animal people that just they just are, you know. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was it, Troika was fun. I had a lot of fun. Uh, Troika. Troika. Uh, and uh, you randomly roll pretty much everything. The major thing you roll is your career slash race. And and I love the art because the art is basically like ballpoint pen art for like the characters, like red ballpoint pen. And it's a really great flavor. Also, apparently, for some reason, Rhino Man had a very tiny helmet. He had a very tiny <laughs> helmet. It was on his list of, of items. Uh, I never got around to doing any jokes with it or anything. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's what I've been up to. Cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. So T-R-O-I-K-A, and there's an exclamation mark, and there's somewhere, I'm guessing? At the end. At the end. Cool. You yes. can't tell. From everything you told me about this game, it's just chaos, so I'm not sure. But yeah. I mean, it was a it was a well-structured adventure, uh-huh. just kind of wild and kind of crazy, so. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of wild and crazy guys. That's fine. Cool. No huh. plaid. Okay. No plaid. Out. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Tristan, you were kind of nodding when I was spelling out Troika. Have you ever played it? Not played it, uh, but I've you know I've seen it around, uh, okay. and it's always seemed really neat. Uh, you know, it's it's always been on on my my list of you know ten thousand games that if life had infinite hours per day, I would absolutely have run a campaign of Troika by now. But alas, <laughs> death comes for us all, and you can only squeeze in so many. <laughs> Yeah, we started a thing um, with me and my roommates where every month we're going to try and do one night where we try a new system because between me and them, there's three of us that live there and they used to own a game store. So they have we have so many RPG books in that house and I'm like, we need to play them as much as possible at some point. So once a month we try and do a one shot of some game. So it's not going well. Um, we've done it like twice, but well, that's two there. more. That's two more than you normally got to. So yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. Well, Tristan, what have you been up to in the gaming realm, and who are you? Introduce yourself a little bit to everybody. Uh, so hi, I'm Tristan Zimmerman. He, him. Uh, I write the Molten Sulfur blog, where I every week I put out. Um, content drawn from real history and folklore. So I put out something uh, that, you know, is is cool and neat and interesting and worth learning about in its own right. And then I talk about how to file the serial numbers off of it and drop it right into the campaign that you're already running. So how to turn real cool things from real history and folklore into gaming material that you can use immediately in, in the campaign that you're already running. Um, and uh, that that blog has been nominated for uh, for a couple Ennies, and uh, and I'm very proud of it. Um, yep. And I also uh, am am hoping to at some point tonight talk just a little bit about uh, Shanty Hunters, my upcoming RPG about collecting magical sea shanties in the year 1880, which will be coming to Kickstarter in November. Uh, but uh, in answer to the question of like, hey, what have you been doing gaming wise recently? Uh, I am uh, getting close to wrapping up a uh, a year long campaign of ultraviolet grasslands. Um, it has been an enormous amount of fun for folks not familiar with UVG. It's um, 
an overland caravan OSR kind of game where um, you play a bunch of weirdos traveling across a deeply weird plain, a, a grassland. Mm -hmm. um, but the further you travel, the weirder it gets. Um, and yeah, we've just been having a blast with it. So getting close to wrapping that up. Uh, I'm playing in a, a Swordfish Islands campaign. Uh, Swordfish Islands is uh, is a really cool hex crawl, uh, fabulously well done. If anybody out there uh, is considering running a hex crawl, like look at Swordfish Islands. It it really is the standard um, <laughs> for a reason. Uh, fabulously well done. Um, and my wife is running it, and she has put an awesome twist on it, uh, which is that it, if she has set the the campaign in heroic age Greece, uh, mm. so we are all playing. Uh, crew members from Odysseus's return trip from Troy, we washed up on Hot Springs Island mm -hmm. um, and are now having to pick our way across and deal with all the weird stuff on the island. So we're, we're, we're having an absolute blast there. That sounds awesome. Um, the first campaign that I was ever in, this was about 10 years ago, it was kind of like a White Wolf Super Friends kind of situation. We had, I mean, vampires. We had a Malkavian. We had, I was a Kitsune. We had like a werebear that I can't remember the name for what they actually are. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just all of the different books we got to use for this campaign. And it was set around the Battle of Thermopylae. So we like ran into Xerxes, who was not human. And so we had to try and figure out what he actually was. So yeah, it was it was interesting. It was, it's a really good time period, I think, to set a game in. I think that you can do a lot with that time frame, which we will get into because that's the topic of the show. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. And uh while I'm talking, I'll just keep going. Um I my both my Pathfinder campaigns currently are on hiatus because we play with actors and they have plays to be in or whatever. So, there's that. Um but I am going to this week be starting the Gallant vs Origins campaign with Alan, who I'll shoot over to in a second but um yeah we i'm really excited about it uh i've seen artwork for the big bad that we're gonna have to fight and i'm very nervous so it should be a lot of fun but yeah that's not artwork for the big bad it's not no nick just drew a placeholder where oh. i'm the big bad yeah yeah well, no, you're the, the gm so you... yeah no, there's a different big bad oh god okay this <laughs> but i have your banner and it's delightful Bigger, badder. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun in Utah, Yukon Dark, and we have the whole crew back for this one. So I'm pretty excited to start in on that on Thursday. But that's that, and Mamre Alpha is still recording and going. But um, that's that. I kind of have taken a little bit of a break from RPGs, not by any choosing of my own. Uh, it's just all of my stuff ended up going on hiatus right about now. So... Anyway, but yes, um, Alan, speaking of Gallant vs. Origins, I know that's one thing you have coming up, but what have you been up to in the realm of RPGs? Well, I have uh, five weekly games, not counting Gallant vs. Origins. Yeah. So um, I'm running a D&D 5th edition campaign. Mm -hmm. um, it's been lots of fun. We're doing, uh, I'm running some of the Goodman Games reprints of like classic OSR-style modules. Uh, we, we are currently doing Castle Amber. So. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, I'm running Worldwide Wrestling, the Powered by the Apocalypse Wrestling game. Yes. For some friends. Uh, and I went whole hog on creating like promos and logos. And we're sending it during the early <laughs> 90s at the beginning of the Monday Night Wars. Yeah. So that's that was like the, 
was it the attitude era was around that uh, time? right before that starts yeah, yeah. okay mm-hmm. yeah uh, that so that's fun. been lots of fun uh, mm-hmm. My wife disagrees because she's had to watch a lot of wrestling documentaries. <laughs> but I'm having fun. Um, I just saw that Chris Jericho's doing, it's like a Jericho cruise. Yeah. And it's got a ton of wrestlers on it. And like one of the, um, oh, fuck, who was it? Whatever. Good story. Anyway, it was, there's a lot of wrestlers, like old wrestlers from the 90s that are going to, oh, Jake the Snake. Jake the Snake is going to be on the cruise. And I was like, that's awesome. And the, um, the wild guns, I think what they were called. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. Like Billy Gunn And yeah, I was yeah. like, Oh my God, that would be so much fun to go on. <laughs> yeah. Wrestling uh, fan. But. And I got some play test groups going. We're playing mm-hmm. uh pathfinder two E right now. What uh, module are you doing in two E? We're doing the stuff in the beginner box. Cool. Uh, yep. We're building up because I want to run the not mortal Kombat one that just came out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait. The three part where you go to a mystic island and fight in a tournament for a sorcerer. Yeah. Oh. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, wait, it's, it's not yeah. subtle. Yeah. It's like very the second much. module is called Ready Fight. Do, <laughs> do, do you open the module and it just starts playing 90s techno music? No. But it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. In my right. heart. All right. In, okay. Because yeah, that's here, important. Yes. Right. right um, and then we uh, we've got our standing like war game group and board mm-hmm. game night and stuff. So I basically am doing some version of a game every day. That's awesome. That's the dream. Like that would be so cool to be able to do that. Sure, super yeah. cool. One thing I will say about Pathfinder Two E because that's one of the campaigns that I do. Um, <laughs> so you're doing Plague Stone then? I think is the starter adventure that they have for that one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it is. The cha- like the difficulty level on that for some reason is so ramped up from what you'd expect from Pathfinder One E. Um, we almost no one actually died, but we came very close to at least one character, if not a TPK, like every session. And we even were probably a little more overpowered than we should have been because our GM looked ahead and was kind of like, mm, "These are gonna fuck them up like real bad." So he let us be a little more powerful than we even should have been, and it still was wow. really hard. So. That's a stressful game. <laughs> it's like the stressful campaign I'm in because someone is about to die every session. But mm. well, I'm down to uh, experience that, and I'm not going to give them anything. They can survive or die. Yeah. <laughs> Are you running that one? Oh yeah. Oh good. I'm running okay. all these games. I don't. I don't get to play games. Oh, you're the forever GM. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, part of the problem is when you own your. I probably tell people who I am. I'm Alan Barr. Yes. I own and operate Gallant Night Games. We produce role playing games. So uh, when you're producing games, you're running a lot of play tests. Mm-hmm. So uh, I end up GMing a lot. So yeah, but you did get a break for Yukon Dark. You got yeah, that's that the one. first time I've ever played one of my own games as a player. Yeah, so, what did you think of it? How was that? Uh, I think the designer's awful and the hack. <laughs> <laughs> you're like who clearly, lets this guy make games? <laughs> he, he clearly didn't think it through. No, yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Madi ran a great game. So, yeah, she did. She was awesome. She's yeah, very good. she was fantastic. So it was super creepy and good, and I loved it. So yeah, it was awesome. Plus, I got to be super tactured and terse with everybody, and that's always fun for me. Yeah, I like that your name was Jameson. You are wearing a shirt that says whiskey across it, and I'm assuming that's not apple juice in that glass you keep drinking out of. So 
you've got like a whole theme going. That's fantastic. I like to lean into it. Right. Yukon Dark, I will never think of moose jowls the same way. So, anyway. Moose flaps. That was. There were some, yeah, there were some moments where I was like, mm, yep, don't freak out on the internet where everybody can see it. Keep yeah. it bottled up inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was one time where everyone was just like, Ashley, are you okay? And I was like, yep, I'm fine. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God. It got- we had a backstage chat and we're all like, everybody chill. Is everybody right. good? <laughs> just, just like waiting for the exit. Get out. <laughs> Yeah, that was it was a lot of fun, but yeah, that was definitely yeah. some gross bits. But I was super pumped for some superhero action on Tuesday, uh, Thursday next week. Thursday, mm-hmm. Thursday next week at eight thirty Central Time. Yeah, which is where I am, six thirty Eastern Pacific Time, nine thirty Eastern Time. Figure it out, whatever. Yeah, eight thirty <laughs> Central Time. Do the time zone conversion. I've been look, drinking. It's not my problem. Look, look, we're Close we're in air. We're in Arizona, so our time is never any actual time zone. So, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> when I say time is meaningless, I mean it in like every sense of the word. Ashley gave me the time for today. I was like, "What time is it there?" Okay, because yeah. where it is here, what's the difference? Yeah, I'll be there. Because I thought for some reason we were one hour apart, but we're two. When I was in Utah, we were either the same or one hour apart, and now mm-hmm. it's either two or one. Because I'm depending. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay, well, um, real quick, some announcements before we get into the actual topic. Uh, we do have a new schedule. We are we talked about this last week a little bit, but we are going to be streaming live every two weeks. So this week and then two weeks from now and so on and so forth until forever. Um, we start at 8 p.m. our time is the pre-show. So if you hop on Twitch, you can watch us get through technical issues and talk about anything random anything random bullshit random yes, bullshit random bullshit so including can, pineapples pineapples yes and what that means so uh there's that uh that's the pre-show it starts at 8 p.m and 8 30 arizona time which changes depending on the time of year um that's going to be the actual start time uh so that's going to be when it's live uh the following wednesday is when that's going to come out to the general public so uh, that's going to be our, our new schedule that we're trying out for now, which means that twice a year you get three episodes a month. So that's kind of exciting, which October is going to be one of those. So Ooh. that'll be coming up soon. Uh, some Patreon shout outs. Richard is kind of the man with the money behind the Patreon on that. So I'll let him cover all of the Patreon info. Right. Well, uh, we have some... Uh... Not a not and nothing uh, new in the Patreon right now. Well, actually, that's not true. We have had a uh, a bit of a dip after our uh, our illustrious uh, former host has uh, uh, passed on to the realm of fire. Uh, he uh, his uh, his presence uh, has uh, been missed, and our Patreon has been reduced by a large percentage. So uh, we're coming up with a uh, a, a new uh, uh, goal, and I'm going to just going to spit one out right now. For if we get back to two hundred dollars a month, I will bring back uh, Buzzkill's bookshelf, and uh, it will be Patreon only. So. Uh, that's going to be that's our first goal, and we may add more. I think there's been some people in the, our Patreon chat that has said they would be interested in a Chuck Tingle actual play. 
and uh, and that will um, that that is a very interesting uh, goal, but we will have to see what what level that's going to be. So it, it's going to be much simpler than it was, and uh, we're going we're working on redoing it right now. But uh, we appreciate all all those that are uh, what uh, are, are already on our Patreon and. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Alan yeah, is a pa- thank you. This, this Patreon is Alan endorsed. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I, we really appreciate Alan being there for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we got Daryl a new camera today, so uh, next time he's on, yeah, he gets to have an actual good camera instead of using his laptop camera. Yeah, the, it looked like a '80s VHS and not in the good way. <laughs> and imagine you call it the Alan Cam in honor of my donations. Over here. <laughs> All right. We, we will on we, the Alan cam, yep. yeah he's he's in the chat so uh <laughs> daryl you should have it in on your doorstep by in in the next two hours so it's we're just gonna already. it's there already okay so we're gonna we're gonna tattoo it out go alan cam uh after after this so now i'm on the patreon i have everything i want right. <laughs> yeah come out yes Daryl on the Allen cam. All right. But uh, we really appreciate the patrons. We would not be at the level of quality we are now uh, without you. Uh, we would probably be rambling in the back corner of a role-playing store that was closed because we yeah. record late at night. So instead of being <laughs> on the internet. So we'd have to break in. We would have criminal records because we'd have to break into a closed RPG store so that we could sit in the back corner and do this. Folks, yeah. your donations on a monthly basis are yes. helping these people stay on the straight and narrow. That's right. right? Uh-huh. This is the time to come together as a community and give so they can continue to become better people tomorrow than they were today. That's Thank right. You. That's Think right. of it as like preemptive bail. Right. <laughs> yes. we're, we're really gaming the system here. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, with that, we'll hop into our topic for the evening, which is historical RPGs, which is a topic that I think is going to be a lot of fun to cover, especially with our two guests that we have here, because you either have or will soon have out um, a historical game, correct? Uh, Tristan, you kind of talked a little bit about yours, um, the shanty game earlier. So, Alan, you have one yeah. that is going to be coming out too, correct? Yeah, so coming out in October from Osprey Games is a game called Heirs to Heresy. Um, and I wrote it, hence why I'm here. You know, I'm not here talking about somebody else's game. It's my game. I wrote it. Um, but it's a game about the fall of the Knights Templar mm. and a mystic journey, or maybe not so mystic, and we'll get into that, I suppose, um, about what the 30 remaining Templar Knights do with the treasure of the Templars as the Templar Order is being destroyed. So, very cool. That's yeah. awesome. So, with historical gaming, it kind of when people think of gaming, they think of fantasy. I think because you've got D anD D, you've got Pathfinder; those are like the big ones. And it seems like a lot of tabletop RPGs are more fantasy driven. So, what made you decide to go more into history, and what makes you more interested in doing maybe a historical RPG than doing the fantasy that's out there? What draws all of you together as a group? Two historical RPGs, not not necessarily making them, I should say. Yeah. So, Richard, do you are you into historical, or I know that you like cyberpunk. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, I would like to maybe 
place them more in historical settings. I think the historical setting that I think would be probably the well, it's the it's the hist- history period of history that I'm currently the most fascinated with is World War One. Mm-hmm. That's the, the the idea that we basically had an actual apocalypse because the number of people it just the just the sheer the sheer number of people who were killed in that in that war is unrivaled as far as i can tell and and it changed it's still we still have repercussions from that war to this day so i find that period of history very fascinating and i listen to a podcast called hardcore history that I, I really, uh, really love listening to it and uh, just all the different versions, uh, all the different like World War One, and basically we'll call World War Two World War One Part Two. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that whole period would probably be the most interesting to me. So, okay. So, Alan, what do you think about yeah. history versus fantasy? so? You know, I, I find it interesting the way RPGs, because the way people consume RPGs doesn't mirror a lot of other media. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at the way people consume other pop culture, a superhero RPG should be the best-selling RPGs. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, how many people turn out for the next Marvel movie or the next DC movie? Right? Superheroes are like the escapist fantasy of standard pop culture. Yeah. And yet, inside the RPG industry, we're all like, no, it's fantasy. Yes, and really, yeah. aside from Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, you can't name another major fantasy IP that's in pop culture consumption regularly. Yeah, I mean, right? Did Lord of the Rings? Did you say that? I did. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> I was like, but even then, that. you've got the movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot else, right? Right. Mm-hmm. There's always new superhero stuff. There's always new sci-fi, Star Trek. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the Expanse. That stuff's been going on forever. So it's interesting to me that somehow fantasy RPGs are up here and sci-fi and superheroes are some of the worst selling genres of RPGs. Yeah, that's true. Right? It's like inverted, which I think is interesting. Um, And because of that, I think as gamers, we tend to go, well, history is just fantasy without the cool bits, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I I think that's super wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because history is insane. Yeah. It is nuts. Mm-hmm. Like you could write this in a book, and your publisher would be like, "You can't print that. Nobody would believe that." Mm-hmm. And you could be like, "No, it happened. There, it was historical record, right?" Mm-hmm. Like, you know. And I think history RPGs are one of the really interesting ways to explore, um, explore something you don't get to explore in an immersive sense, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be really powerful. It can also be really just fun and kind of like a Michael Bay popcorn movie, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you you can get Schindler's List, you can get Michael Bay, mm-hmm. um, and you get that whole gamut inside RPGs. And so I think historical RPGs are, in a large sense, an untapped area of storytelling that we're not spending time thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time thinking about them. Yes, I know that you're a big history buff, so yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like even outside of the RPG realm. Yeah. But yeah, that's true. I think that uh, a lot of people play rpgs as as a way to escape um some of them might use it as a power fantasy kind of thing so which we'll get into a little bit later some of the pitfalls of doing that with historical rpgs um but yeah that's that's actually a good point i didn't think about that how it's totally different from how we consume media generally in pop culture uh tristan what do you think about that and what is it that draws you to historical gaming 
so for me, uh, I'm I'm first going to lump together two perhaps dissimilar concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, heck, I'll lump together three perhaps dissimilar <laughs> concepts. Go wild. Concept number one uh, is uh, straight stick history, right? Like we we are going to role play in this real historical setting and we're going to play either real historical characters or characters that kind of slip between the pages and totally could have existed. So that's, you know, that's concept one is like real grounded history. Concept two is um, history plus genre element. Um, so for example, uh, I did some work on an occult world war one RPG called never going home, yes. which is mm-hmm. world war one plus occult magic and evil cults and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun. Um, so, but, but that's also, you know, that's, that's still historical in that you start with history and then you add the genre element. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's related. And then number three is, um, historically inspired content. So this could be in a completely fictional setting, right? Like you could be playing Dragonlance, something utterly disconnected from real history. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing in your adventure is you're taking stuff from real history and you're filing the serial numbers off of it and you're going ahead and putting it in your ongoing totally fictional campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though nothing about this is real, it's still strongly inspired by and drawn from something in real history. And I love all three of these things. I think mm-hmm. all three of these things are amazing. And honestly is, is where I do like the bulk of my gaming because of the richness, mm-hmm. because history has a richness and a complexity and a fundamental humanity to it mm-hmm. that comes across in ways that something that is, that is utterly fictional usually lacks or at the very least requires an enormous amount of effort to manufacture. And I genuinely believe that your players can tell the difference, right? That, mm-hmm. that you can, can feel the difference between something that is wholly invented and something that is drawn from or grounded in the real lived experience of real people who actually lived because it's more complicated and it's more rich and it has that fundamental humanity to it that just makes the whole thing sing, makes the whole thing come alive. And I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you kind of bring up a good point here is that I think um, people are drawn to history in a way to kind of find out more about themselves. You know, like genealogy is a big thing. Um, when I travel, for example, I went to Prague like 10 years ago or something like that. And the biggest thing for me was thinking there were people that lived here. Like instead of looking at um, the tourism stuff, which was pretty cool. I remember the the coolest moment for me was I was walking down the street and I was like a thousand years ago, someone else was walking on this street. You know, what was their daily life like? Like, what was the humanity aspect of that? What was life like for them on a daily thing? So you can take that as a storyteller and spin it into this whole thing. You can easily make something really big out of that. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, part of it is a lot of the problems that we're facing today in our personal lives or our societal lives are problems that have also been faced historically, mm-hmm. right? But in a different context or a different um, exploration. And so I think there's a lot of 
it's not as different as it sounds mm-hmm. in in many ways, right? And I think you know what what Tristan was saying is is true. There are these different tiers of how you use history in your game, but I think at the core experience, historical gaming is about confronting problems that persist inside the human condition today, just in a different ethos or atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay. So what do you feel about, Tristan, you kind of touched on this with you take history and then put another genre on top of it, but how do you feel about like true historical gaming versus a uh, historical fiction gaming? Like where do you kind of blur the line there? Do you like to keep them separate or... How do you feel about historical gaming versus historical fiction? Um, so I, I, I have, I love both of it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that it is important as part of your session zero to establish how historical we're being here. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if I sit down to a campaign where my GM says, okay, you know, it is, uh, the 19 teens and we're going to play a bunch of uh, we're going to play a bunch of European occultists. And, you know, Tristan, you're playing Rudolf Steiner, real historical occultist guy. Um, and if halfway through the campaign, it turns out that magic is real, right? I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel a little bit betrayed because mm-hmm. that's not, and I have no problem with it, but like hang a, hang a flag on it at the beginning so that I know what I'm getting into so that I know what genre I'm about to play. And as long as I know what genre I'm about to play, heck yeah, I am all in, Mm -hmm. but you know, as with everything in, in session zero, communicate. Yeah. Session zero is definitely, you, you set the tone, you set all of that for the campaign. So, Mm -hmm. so I'm actually going to disagree with Tristan. Yeah. Mm. Um, sorry (laughs) to jump in right away. Spicy. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think historical gaming gives us a powerful tool to subvert expectations. And in that game, where I want Tristan to be like, I'm an occultist, my job is to debunk this stuff, right? I want to, you know, you're the, you're the Brothers Grimm from the Matt Damon, uh, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger movie, right? You're, you're like, this isn't real. And all of a sudden you're confronted with, holy crap, this is real, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That can be a really powerful tool during storytelling, you know, and I don't see it as a betrayal. I see it as a tool in the toolbox that GM can use if they want to. I, I, I am am comfortable agreeing with you, um, but with a big old asterisk <laughs> on it, um, which is that it, it depends enormously on the relationship that that the GM has with well, the players. Well, sure, um, but you can say that with any game, and 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 yeah, yeah, and, and I recognize that because because it's a very important thing, right. yeah. but. Um, if, if you have a, a, a deep level of trust where you're like, okay, you know what? I have been gaming with Susan for a long time. Susan knows what she's doing. Sure. Then when Susan's like, and actually Rudolf Steiner, you know, you've been selling all this huckster stuff all over Europe. Right. and just being like, ah, I'm laughing it up all the way to the bank. Well, it turns out the spell you just cast actually worked. Then I'm going to say like, oh, wow, Susan's going someplace really interesting with this. But if this is my first time playing with Susan, my response personally is likelier to be, okay, look, like, I know my character, like, my character right. did not actually cast a spell because that's not who he is. Like, don't try telling me who my character is. And you're going to have that pushback. So 
you know, an enormous amount of it is, 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 is trust. Well, I would also say that like in that situation, if, if I'm the, if, if a GM should be showing, showing you that there's like little peaks, uh, peaks of through the car, the, the beaded curtain, that something is going on. That's more than, you know, just a little bit here and there to try and prepare the players for when you flip the tables on them. Cause if you just, dump that on somebody it can go wrong even if you don't know them very well like or even you know them really well right so uh announcing something is coming you know like or and the sessions here would be a good place to do that but i can certainly understand saving that uh excellent reveal for later um Anyway. And that's why I think that I would tend to go more toward um, historical fiction rather than history, because history, I think, is so you have to be kind of railroady with it, you know, because if you're following history, you want to stay true to the history. The Titanic sank, you know. Well, OK, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, can- I, I. I think we're using the term history and historical fiction the same, frankly, because mm-hmm. you say historical fiction. I immediately go, it's a historical RPG. It's all fiction. Like, yeah. Right. The minute we start playing, everything becomes fictional because we're going to change it. <laughs> well, yeah, right? and that's why. So, I think what's that... the difference? And I would also argue that history is also fiction because it was written by the victors. So, like, it, there's, there's oh. no. <laughs> Ooh, I have a thing for that. I want to talk about that one in a minute. All right. Okay. But... Yes. Um, cool. But, but what I will say is, um, for me at least, and and for the folks that I I usually play with, mm-hmm. uh, RPGs. One of the enormous draws to RPGs vice any other medium of fiction is the idea of of action and consequence, right? That mm-hmm. I made choices last week and this week I show up and and the choices that I made mm-hmm. are having consequences. And that's amazing. And you don't get that with novels. You don't even really get that with choose your own adventure novels, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the, um and if I am in a historical campaign and it has become clear that we we cannot change the course of history. Mm-hmm. Then I might as well read the the, the GM's novel, right? Like the GM yeah, might as well write me a novel, and I might as well just read it. So no, yeah. if it, when when I run history, it's um, it's look everything that is in the past is in the past that has happened. Mm-hmm. But from here on out, your actions have consequences, and and history may play out very differently. Yeah. So kind of treat historical gaming, and this is another point that I wanted to talk about too. Was um. Is it like basically you take the historical events and it's like a theme park where the rides are there, everything is set out and laid out, but you just get to play in it. It's kind of like a sandbox with very defined walls. Is that how you see it? Alan, you look like you disagree with that. I mean, that's never how I approach it. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and I would do the same thing if you're like, Alan, we want you to run a campaign that's Star Wars, that's based on the original trilogy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Ashley's going to play Leia, Richie's going to play Luke, Tristan's going to play Han. And I, my initial statement would be, cool, you all know who you are, anything goes. So if you do something different, the campaign's going to go off the rails, right? Yeah. You might not get a new hope. Right. You might get, we all drowned in a trash compactor. <laughs> right? Fine, right? Like, that's yeah. fun to know and, that And to me, happen. that's where the history stops. The minute we start rolling dice, history's over. Yeah. Right? I've, I've given you a launching pad. I've given you the backdrop. I've given you all the prep with the history. But the minute you roll dice, you're not you're not in a theme park just going on the ride. You are going to change what might really happen, or mm-hmm. it becomes fictional, and you can change things because it's a story. Mm-hmm. Which is what most historical fiction does. If you read like Bernard Cornwall, 
really kind of gritty, authentic, deeply researched historical fiction, that is not accurate. Right. Right? Like, he just changes stuff because it's a better story. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so I think, you know, and this goes back to the history, uh, history is written by the winners. So there's an interesting article, and I have to remember who sent it. I want to say it was one of the, like, Harvard or Yale or somebody, um, where they did a big study, and the current theory is history is written by the losers. You might win the war, but the public perception is written by the losers. Because mm. they get the strong... Well, and a, as an example, in the U.S., look at the Confederacy. Right? Mm-hmm. The North won. Would you say that North wrote the history of that conflict? Of the conflict? I don't know. But I think that the victors or the North are the ones who wrote the history because of the fact that slavery and all of that that happened in the South are definitely not portrayed in a positive light. And I think that... Sure. But a lot of people would dispute and say the war is about states' rights. Uh-huh. And and the, the that the mythology of the lost cause, which right. was developed after the war it does not really appear the the idea of a noble cause uh for states rights does not so much appear in documentation before the war but mm-hmm. magically appears in southern documentation after the war um and i i'm picking that example because it's something mm-hmm. as yeah. people in the u.s we understand that conflict right yeah but look at the revolutionary war mm-hmm. right we write it, we view it as this, we rose up against the tyrant, we overthrew them. Yeah, look at right? Hamilton, just watch Right, <laughs> and if you look at the stuff that was happening, like, the laws that we were under are pretty standard, right? Mm-hmm. We just got kind of bitchy about it. <laughs> uh-huh. Right? And so here we have this mythology, and in England they have a different view of that. Mm-hmm. Right? They're the losers, but across most of Europe, their perception is going to kind of adhere to the English perception of our Revolutionary War. Do you think that that's more of a geographical thing because they're closer to them over there? Or do you think it's because they were the losers? I think it's because history isn't written by winners. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Okay. And so what that, I think when, it, when you look at history, you know, and, and an example uh, from this game I'm working on, Heirs to Heresy, which is coming out from Osprey in October. Pre-order it now. Help me make money. <laughs> Let me pay rent. Go to Osprey's website. You can get it on Amazon, whatever. Um, uh, it's about the Templars. And there is a uh-huh. lot of mythology around the Knights Templar. Uh-huh. Like, a lot, a lot. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and just wild conjecture, right? Mm-hmm. Just crazy whatever you want. Um, and the Templars lost mm-hmm. that conflict. They were exterminated. They were burned at the stake as heretics, mm-hmm. right? And for hundreds of years, we had this idea. And in the last hundred years, we found documents in the papal archives that are like, the Pope exonerated them, and the King of France just burned them anyway. Mm. Right? And so, while history was written by the winners, eventually history is going to be written by the losers in the case of the Templars. Because uh-huh. things start to change. Right? The winners only get to write history for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Look how people view the Confederacy now. Look how the World War II is viewed. Look at Vietnam, right? These things change. And so historical gaming gives us an avenue to put ourselves in the position of people who were there at the time mm-hmm. and develop a better understanding of what's happening in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that, yeah. Richard, what do you say to that? Well, I was, I was just thinking, like, 
it's sort of it's history is almost always being reinterpreted by the lens of whatever's currently going on. Right. Like mm-hmm. people that are writing history books today are reinterpreting the history based on the writings of all the people that went before them. Uh, and I, I think that there is something, there is something there, but I also think that like, depending on what's going on, you know, there's a lot of books that get written to justify the attitude that people want to have about a certain time period. Right. right? And that it it continues to be rewritten as we go on. Uh, But there are definitely times when, you know, the Roman empire is, is, is authoritarian uh, fascist shitbags that they were was the greatest thing of all time. Like they were the lauded Roman empire, but as time went on, everybody went, Hey, you know, they kind of did a bunch of crazy bullshit that, you know, it's, it's, it's that same, like it's being reinterpreted under the lens of today. And, and that's why I kind of say that, you know, history Maybe not written by the victors, but it's written by someone. It's it's being interpreted Absolutely. by someone, and that uh, that interpretation is then being interpreted by whatever the game master <laughs> wants to say about history. It's it's a really crappy game of telephone, right? <laughs> yep. Purple purple monkey dishwasher. Uh, we we start with you know. We the people, we end up with purple monkey dishwasher, which may actually be explain the current state of everything. So, uh, <laughs> at the risk of, of totally derailing this podcast and, and continuing this tangent, though, grand I'm tradition here, I'm definitely going to push back on on honestly push back on virtually all concepts of 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 hard and fast historical laws. Uh, well, sure. And in this instance, the idea that that losers, in fact, went right the, the the histories, and I would point specifically at um, at Caesar's history of the Gallic Wars. Right, Caesar literally wrote the history, and there is not really an opportunity for the Gauls to rewrite that history because Caesar literally murdered half of them like mm-hmm. personally and basically exterminated to and 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 burned such records as existed we know in in the modern era the name of exactly one druid right and that is a name that appeared in Caesar's Gallic Wars and yeah, man, like he just did such a thorough job that sure we can we can attempt, we can, you know, try to, to parse this little bit and parse that little bit. And and you can pull in a fair bit with archaeology. And and with every passing year, archaeologists grow more skilled, and that's that's really impressive. Right. But there are pretty hard limits on the degree to which the Gallic Wars can be rewritten because of the extermination of evidence. I I will concede that. I might have been too broad and absolute in my statement, but you know, I think picking an edge case of a culture that doesn't have a strong written tradition is maybe a bit unfair to my point as well. <laughs> Fair enough. Perhaps um, so. Uh, I could be like, yeah, sure. I mean, we don't, we couldn't rewrite caveman history because they, they just drew some pictures for us, <laughs> you know. But I also point out that in the last year, we've discovered that those pictures 
actually are not what we thought they were. Mm-hmm. There's a fascinating article in this, I think it was the Smithsonian, where they were talking about if you look at them with a flashlight, they look like these unfinished pictures. But if you take an actual flickering flame, the pictures physic- uh, physically appear to move and they become a tableau of a moving story, almost a 3D image. Mm-hmm. And so... And so even now we're rewriting prehistoric cave paintings with our understanding of what they are saying mm-hmm. to us. And that and history is changing. Mm-hmm. That's one of the cool things about history is that the more we see stuff like that, the more we see with archaeology, the more more writings are able to come out about it. I mean, like, yes, immediately after something, the people that are in right. power are the ones who are going to put the stories out there. So yeah. eventually, yes, other things will come out in other viewpoints, which is amazing. But how do you feel about uh, history in historical gaming being to like lore in other gaming. Do you feel 100%. like that's a, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty valid comparison? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Because I know there are a lot of people who don't like to play games who have very strict lore and a lot yep. of lore because you have to learn all of it or you're going to end up messing up in the game, you know? Well, and one of the best parts about historical gaming is it's really easy to tell somebody what we're doing. If I go to Tristan, hey, Tristan, I'm going to run this uh, Caesarian Roman RPG, right? And here's my basic premise. It's politics in Rome and yada. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't know much about Rome. I could be like, do you have HBO Max? Go watch Rome. It's two seasons. (laughs) Uh You're kind of, you have the tone. You're set, right? Or, Or you can just be like, look, man, here's the relevant Wikipedia article. Right. Take 15 like, minutes, read the, the relevant Wikipedia article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I, you're, you're not going to have a master's degree in what we're talking about, but for the purposes of knowing what your character knows and being able yeah. to make intelligent political decisions, yeah, you know what you need I, to know. I can't do that for L5R or the Forgotten Realms, right? Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is like with Vampire, for example, there are how many books that go <laughs> so far back. Yeah. If you're trying to get into one of those campaigns, it's going to take you so long. So. Right. You don't have the option necessarily of watching. History gets a bad rap as being inaccessible. And I think that's wrong because mm-hmm. most people who are running historical games mm-hmm. are going to be armchair historians at best or pop culture historians. Oh, for sure. Right. Uh-huh. And so the idea that a historical game is inaccessible, I think is really flawed. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the most accessible form of gaming, aside from maybe superheroes, right? Yeah. If I'm like, we're playing superheroes, everybody's like, okay, sure, right? Yeah. We know. But history yeah. is there. Like, Gladiator. How, everybody, how many people mm-hmm. haven't seen Gladiator or Titanic? Or, yeah. you know, pick a historical period. There's something for it. The TV show Vikings, mm-hmm. right? How many people watch that? You know? So there's, there's a near in infinite amount of resources to point people to if they want to mm-hmm. get quickly comfortable with historical gaming that do doesn't think- exist in other spheres yeah do you think that people may avoid running historical rpgs because of the fact that they see it as inaccessible tristan you're yes. nodding yeah yes uh, and i can i can point to to examples from my own life right mm-hmm. um where i have considered running something in in a historical setting and then thought oh wait no joel is going to be in that campaign (laughs) i can't run something during the russian revolution joel knows a hundred times more about the russian revolution than i do (laughs) and and then of course what you need to do 
is exactly what you would do if you were running a Forgotten Realms campaign mm -hmm. and you just read a couple Drist novels and Joel over here is like, yeah, man, like I know every single Forgotten Realms fact. Right. Yeah. What you do is you go to him and be like, hey, man, I'm going to run something in mm -hmm. Russian Revolution or Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. um, do me a solid, right? Like if I say something wrong, say like, or, or uh, either <laughs> immediately point it out or keep your fucking mouth shut. <laughs> uh, and you know, just set that expectation in the uh, up front yeah. about what you want, we um, and then lean on them so that when somebody says like, "Hmm, we should go to Yekaterinburg," and you're like, "Man, I don't even like what is a Yekaterinburg," and be like, uh, "Hey, Joel, what's what's a Yekaterinburg right now?" And he can be like, "Oh, actually, the Czar and his family are in Yekaterinburg, and like the 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 Red Army is 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 holding on to him and like." Oh man, if we take the Czech Legion up there, like it might panic the Red Army and they might shoot the Tsar and his family prematurely. And you're mm -hmm. like, okay, that's canon. All of you know this. Right. Uh, so do you want to take the Czech Legion up to Yekaterinburg? Um, and so yeah, that's that's definitely one place where it can be intimidating is if mm -hmm. you have somebody in the group who knows it a lot more than you do. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the fear of getting it wrong. Um yeah. and the response to, to I'm afraid of getting it wrong is to figure out whether anybody in your group will give a shit, right? Mm -hmm. If if you get the date wrong on thing X, is anybody in your group going to be upset by that? And yeah. if no one is, then like, yeah, man, cool. Have a great time. Mm -hmm. Richard, you were we, we came up with a uh, mechanic for this. It's called the um actually mechanic. <laughs> so everybody at the table gets one um actually token. And then you can spend your one um actually token to correct whatever lore was just spit spit out in place. Is is it followed by a, a swift punch to the gonads? I mean, <laughs> metaphysically, yes. That's why you get one on the That's second what? one. Absolutely, yeah. you get one free. Yeah, I I mean I think Tristan's right. I think this perceived fidelity to historical accuracy is a hurdle that is not really there, but mm -hmm. perceived to be there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know a lot about a lot of historical periods, but I don't know a lot about a lot of more historical periods. The amount I don't know could, you know, is way more than the amount I know. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I'm probably several scholarly iterations of papers behind on some stuff that I like knowing about even. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I read these scholarly papers, but I got to get to them when I get to them. It's not my job. So, Mm -hmm. There's stuff that's happened that I don't know about, and I'm mm -hmm. probably wrong anyway. So yeah. keeping up on your history, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of work to track stuff that's happened and been done. I know. Like, you yeah. think it'd be easy, but it's not. <laughs> so those are definitely some, I would say, common concerns then for people running historical fiction or his historical gaming. Um, what are some of the other pitfalls that you can see with that? Like I, for example there's a lot of the, it's a product of its time when it comes to like racism or xenophobia and things like that. So how, how do you handle that when you're running a historical game, Tristan? So I have strong opinions about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and oh, uh, uh oh, a cishet white dude is about to tell you his strong opinions about right. <laughs> racism, sexism. So like, Hey man, that is a justified red flag. But because I, I write a historical gaming blog, right? So yeah. this is something I have to grapple with every single week when I put something out is like, okay, like the past is deeply problematic and how, mm -hmm. how do we do this? 
it is perfectly okay to say, you know, hey, we've got multiple people of color as PCs or as players. We've got multiple women as PCs or as players. We've got queer folks as PCs or as players. And all of them are facing very various forms of, of oppression in this historical period. And that is a real thing that is really happening in this period. But we don't have to show it on screen, mm-hmm. right? You are totally allowed to acknowledge that this is, if that's what you want the campaign to be about, if you don't want the campaign to be about these forms of, of oppression, it is totally okay to simply omit it, to acknowledge that it is happening in the setting and just not portray it in the game. And I will give you uh, a, a great analogy for this. I think it's great anyway. And, and my, my, what I think is great is, is, is suspect anyway. Um, pooping. All of your PCs poop. Everybody poops. Right? <laughs> all acknowledge this. When was the last time it came up in mm-hmm. game? It's just not something we talk about in game because it's not what the story's about, right? The story is not about our characters going to the goddamn bathroom. Well, except- whenever, you, whenever you are in a historical fiction setting, you are omitting vast quantities of important historical stuff, stuff that is of critical importance to the PCs and the NPCs. And you're simply not putting it on screen anyway, because that's the story is not about how barley is produced, right? Mm -hmm. That's just, that's not what we're, we're here to tell a story about. So if you are already omitting a bunch of stuff, give yourself the permission to Mm -hmm. be intentional about what you are including and what you are omitting. And if you are telling a story that is about a lot of the awful stuff that is in history, then have that session zero conversation with your players about what they want to see in and Mm -hmm. include it intentionally and omit other stuff intentionally. But if you're omitting all this stuff anyway, don't feel that you are compelled to include the stuff that is going to make game night not fun just for the sake of historical accuracy, because you're already omitting all this other stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Just give yourself the permission. Um, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go like this with your glasses when you say oh. you gotta. You can't. Thank you. I appreciate I, that. No, yes, I, <laughs> I'd like to spend my I'm actually token here. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with Tristan. My, I'm probably a little more, uh, a little more brevity with my notes. It, the stuff you do at your table makes somebody feel bad at your table. You're a dick. Don't be a dick. Yeah, that sums it up. <laughs> like, that's my rule. Like, Yep. Truer words. Never. I, I wrote that in an RPG once, and my editor was like, you can't do that. <laughs> my GM section was, don't be a dick. It was like one word. It was like a page. Like, GM section, don't be a dick in big letters. They're like, you have to write something real. I was like, all right. I'm leaving this. I'll write more, but I'm leaving this. <laughs> I, I like this is important. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, sort sort of like uh, I was just thinking about no one talks about poop in role playing games, but I was like, wait a minute, Gygax hid magic rings down the portalette in one of his castles. So like, <laughs> leave it to him to the historically accurate Gygax. You I don't know? know what group you're playing with, but poop comes up a lot when I'm playing RPG. <laughs> And we might just be really immature, but it's a lot. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I I think I, I think you're right. 
I think it should be talked about beforehand in the session zero. Like if your characters want to like be fighting against an oppression, like I think it should be, you know, it, but it's, as a as someone game mastering something like that, you you've got to be like, all right, well, I can I can be the bad guy, but there's only so <laughs> so much of this I can portray, so you can put you know really deal with this issue. I'm going to have some other things going on, but I definitely want you to be able to express this, uh, you know, fighting against this uh, racism, misogyny. It comes down to all issues in RPGs are born from a lack of communication. Right, and if you communicate openly, upfront, and honestly, mm-hmm. you avoid like ninety nine percent of RPG pitfalls mm-hmm. and issues. Yeah, for sure. It's something then, I harp on in all my books. I'm always like, just talk, just use yeah. your words. Like ninety percent of this GM advice is pointless if you talk. The way that it's like that I've handled it in games that I've run. Um, for example, Thirsty Sword Lesbians. There was one of the which amazing game by the way, highly recommend it. Um, the way that we handled it was. Um, if we are going to have someone in there who is either homophobic or transphobic or something like that, uh, if, and this is a very big session zero conversation is, is it okay to even have that? You've got the lines and the veils. What can you have and what can you have off screen and what can you just not have at all? Um, it's just, they had to not be portrayed as good in any way, shape or form. So if they are going to be, it has to be very clear that they are the bad guys in this, you know? So that's one of the ways that we've handled it in some of my games. Which seemed to work out all right for us. But yeah. Okay, so Richard, you had said this is kind of a jump from topic, (laughs) but you you mentioned that you think World War One is kind of a really good time period to to play around with with games, right? Well, I don't know if it'd be a really good time uh, quest. uh, Ultimate, uh, really, I think it's really interesting because I think that there's. Uh, a lot going on right then and there's yeah. also a, a, a lot before and after like it is definitely a demarcation of of like mm-hmm. an age so mm-hmm. like going through that whole thing and uh looking at uh just you know everything from being you know a soldier in the in the trenches to looking at what it was like to even live in a society that were they were sending just such a percentage of people to that area and what was happening. I I just, I find it the, the, just the mechanics of that and never going home is, uh, you know, definitely on my top of one of my, you know, top uh, one of plays. Uh, I haven't got to play it yet. I have it sitting back there somewhere. Uh, I think I actually have that one too. Yeah. And uh, it, Adding the Cthulhu mythos, I think, is a good way to kind of build that impending doom that I think you would feel just sitting in a trench mm-hmm. waiting for the whistle to blow. Like yeah. that, I think that's why that's a good analogy, and sometimes why doing having genre fiction, having a very grounded setting, but having that genre fiction kind of push in a little bit to kind of highlight it may help uh expand the reach of everyone to be able to enjoy it and also understand the point of what the game is about um because uh just thinking about like just going over the wall and and just this the the idea of uh, a 
the artillery barrages for days launching you know uh, artillery shells for you know it just it's such a a thing that i have a hard time even completely understanding even though i have listened to hours and hours and read a lot about it like it's hard to even understand and i i i think that's why it would be really interesting to role play and i think that it's really easy to kind of meld history with horror because i mean anything that happens throughout history drop cthulhu in and boom it's cool <laughs> like i think that being able to look back at history and saying these things happened we know these things happened but what you didn't know is there may have been an elder god somewhere that was coming up and like fucking with things you know so i think that those are definitely genres that go really well together the uh, the advantage of adding a a genre element to your otherwise straight stick historical game mm -hmm. uh, is it it allows the players you typically to immediately grok what it is they're actually going to be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you, hey, we're going to play a game set in the Holy Roman Empire immediately before the Thirty Years' War, mm -hmm. some of my players will be like, I'm really excited for this because that's who they are. But some of them will just be like, oh, okay, but like, what are we going to be doing? But uh -huh. if I tell them Holy Roman Empire immediately before the Thirty Years' War uh, and witches are real and they're bad, mm -hmm. then everybody's like, oh, yeah, we're going to be, you know, okay, I can imagine, you know, finding some witches. Like, yeah. it, 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 it allow it gives the players something to hang on to that otherwise, mm -hmm. otherwise the setting can just be too big. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. So if you could choose any time period historically to kind of play around with when a game, what, what would you choose? What's your favorite time period for history for that? Uh, so I actually brought three uh, to the party because <laughs> yeah. I said in the notes, uh -huh. like, hey, we'll talk about this thing. So I said, okay, yeah. I better get some books down <laughs> off my bookshelf. Um, the one that I will uh, I will pimp first uh, is Cahokia around the year 1100. Oh, yeah. Um, so Cahokia, for, for those who don't know, Cahokia uh, was this medieval metropolis in downstate Illinois. Right. So this is mm -hmm. a Native American metropolis mm -hmm. um, that to me, what's what's so remarkable about Cahokia is that it uh, it sprung up in a single human generation um, mm -hmm. that you went from a settled agricultural society um, right across the river uh, from me here in St. Louis. Um, with lots of towns and villages and fields and so forth, you went from that to no, we have a city, a capital C city with a king and a stratified society and like all the things about a big goddamn city mm -hmm. in it sprung up, sprung up in a generation, basically suggesting that everybody kind of looked around and said, Hey, let's try this thing. Like let's, mm -hmm. let's be on board. And then like, that means the next generation presumably had to post themselves some questions like, Hey, the previous generation like chose to do this city thing. Do we want to choose to continue this city thing mm -hmm. in ways that like the four of us, we don't get to make that choice because our society evolved very gradually. Yeah. Um, so if you want to run something in Cahokia, I recommend anything uh, by Timothy Paukatat. Um, he is a, uh, an archeologist who does a lot of really good work uh, with Cahokia uh, and writes in a very accessible style and has put out a bunch of books. Um, and also, I will just take a moment to plug, uh, I wrote a murder mystery set in Cahokia in my collection of one-session RPGs uh, mm. titled Making History, Three One-Session RPGs. It's a really fun murder mystery. 
Um, <laughs> the the, uh, the second setting that I will uh, recommend uh, is Papua New Guinea in the first half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, it is an incredibly diverse place with a very low tech level. It is, it is very, in this time period, for the most part, very literally Stone Age, mm -hmm. um, with very high population density for Stone Age, because this is agricultural societies in a very productive rainforest. So lots and lots of people, um, the fundamental unit of government um, is, is a, a clan of some sort that occupies a space a few miles wide and typically speaks a language utterly unintelligible from the guys living in the next valley over, right? So it's an incredibly heterogeneous society, but it's also one uh, that is, is in the process of shaking off the shackles of colonialism, uh, rebelling uh, against uh, German and Japanese and Australian occupation. Uh, you have cargo cults in a lot of areas, uh, which are in uh, a very interesting response to colonialism. And, uh, and it's also like, it's, it, there's a lot of, of, of violence, both inter-clan and just like in general, uh, violence tends to beget interesting stories. Um, it's a really cool setting because it's, you know, steep mountains and tropical oceans and lush rainforest and just like really, really interesting, uh, place. Uh, the book that I will hands down recommend for that is, uh, Road Belong Cargo. Um, but, uh, also good is, uh, Pigs for the Ancestors, uh, both good, um, nonfiction books about that. Uh, and then the last setting that I will recommend uh, is downstate Illinois in the 1920s, um, when you have a three-way war between uh, uh, side one, big money prohibition gangsters, rum runners, bootleggers, but like highly organized ties to Capone uh, based out of East St. Louis, tie two, scrappy local gangster rum runners uh, headed by a psychopathic Robin Hood character. And side three, the fucking Ku Klux Klan. Uh, all three sides hate one another and are trying to murder one another to the greatest extent possible. So you got three bad sides duking it out. And yeah, man, like roll into that and start organizing things, start dropping bodies, start investigating occult mysteries. Like it is an incredible backdrop in amongst the, the cornfields and coal mines of, of little Egypt. Um, and the, uh, the hands down, the book I recommend uh, is a night of another sort uh, prohibition days and Charlie Berger. Uh, I am supposed to uh, recommend bloody Williamson because it's the classic on the subject. But really, a night of another sort is the is is should be your go to book, uh, and those are the three settings that I brought prepared. Cool. Wow! <laughs> Thank you. Congrats. Did your homework. <laughs> Doff hat. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I like that you're like these are the settings and these are the resources. So thank you for bringing resources for anyone interested in that. So, Alan, I'm guessing yours is probably going to be Knights Templar, but I'll let you talk about it instead of me. Uh, well, I yeah, so. Uh, I can, I can start there. So, um, big fan of the Knights Templar, um, mm. is what part of what I studied when I was working on my history degree in college. Um, so wait, you have a history degree? I said working on it. I didn't say I finished it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but I've I've kept up on it, even though I've never never finished it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah no, I'm a doctor. I have a PhD. Call me Doctor <laughs> Allen. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a. Um. So Knights Templar was a focus when I was working towards my history degree. Uh-huh. Um. And I'm a big fan of it. Um. I think it's the juxtaposition between a martial order of a supposedly peaceful religion mm-hmm. caught in a multi-generational long war against another peaceful religion yeah. over land that they both think is sacred is incredibly evocative and powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's deeply, I'm going to, it's, it's a deeply hypocritical era in human history in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had priests saying, well, it's not, a sin if you shed blood in self-defense and that eventually becomes it's not a sin if you mount up on a horse with armor and a sword and provoke a fight so you have to defend yourself right you know yeah um and so it's this the progression of really the crusades are a snapshot of sort of the worst of the human tendency to click up and protect themselves against the supposed other yeah um and i i think the the there's a lot to learn about how to be better people today from the crusades um fair warning the crusades uh are fraught with symbols and things that have been co-opted by folks with undesirable viewpoints these days so you know tread carefully with that and do your research and be careful um but they are there's still value in learning from the mistakes of the past. And I think, and the Templars, especially back then are this insanely powerful religious organization that is so powerful that the church felt the need to sell them out to the most powerful nation mm-hmm. on earth. Cause they didn't think they could deal with them. <laughs> like it's bonkers. The stuff that the Templars could do because they were the first major Western banking Right, they were a military order that was uh, appointed, and so you didn't have to worry about. They were the only order that maintained military power that was not hereditary. So all the kings and queens hate them because you can't buy off a guy who doesn't need to promote his kid because they're all monastic; they don't have kids. Yeah. Right. You just the next guy becomes the Templar. You can't kill that. Mm-hmm. Right. They they have all our money because we can't afford to transport it, and so they 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 functionally invent loan lending, and like depositing and withdrawing in different locations. They would park treasure boats off the the Holy Land, and mm-hmm. you would write up like I'm the King of France back in Paris. I deposited ten thousand gold livres, and you'd hand him your paper, and he'd be like, oh, ten thousand gold livres, because it says the Templar stamp. Yeah, and back there they're like, yeah, we have ten thousand gold livres. And so they, they did a lot of things that became, built them into this crazy ass superpower. Mm-hmm. And then overnight, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And it's insane and it's intense. And so the Heirs to Heresy, the RPG I have coming out from Osprey, you can pre order it now. I told them <laughs> I was coming on to plug my game. So you're getting a lot of that. And I'm sorry. Um, I'll get you some but, links in the show notes, everybody. Thanks. All right. Yeah, I'll get you some links. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm here to plug this game. Um, is it it posits that every campaign starts on October, Friday, October 13th, Mm. uh, in 1307, when the French soldiers stormed the Templar Chateau in Paris. 
and you are one of the 30 Templars who escape with the Templar treasure. And the game is a toolbox that she asks the GM the questions, what is the treasure? Is it just gold? Is it relics, artifacts? Are they mystical? Do the Templars have the hidden Gnostic writings of Solomon, and can they do magic? <laughs> and so it, it's like you have all these dials to turn to create your own iteration of the Templar conspiracy to adventure in. It can be everything from, it's just money, to, oh yeah, when I read this book, I can transcend into the seventh crystal sphere and become like unto a god. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's the idea of history can be what we want. And so it presents all these dials to turn. Um, and so there's some great books. There's so many books on the Templar mythos okay. in heirs to heresy. If you want some reading recommendations, I provide some in there. So if you buy it, you can get my reading recommendations. <laughs> Boom. Plug. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Um, but I leaned heavily on uh, Michael Haig's research. Um, he write, He's a journalist who writes historical uh, overviews, and they're very non-technical. They're very accessible and readable, and they're very good. Um, and he wrote some fun ones on the Templars that are kind of a great starting point. Uh, be careful what you read. There's a lot of misinformation about the Templars. Do not take my book as sole information, because I made a lot of crap up. <laughs> and I say that in the introduction, like I outright lie a lot in this book. <laughs> so get the BL like free, read your scholarly sources. Um mm-hmm. if I had to pick a second one, I'm a big fan of the Jacobite Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um if you've seen the TV show Outlander, that's set during the Jacobite Rebellions. Ah, uh, okay. Um that's like the kind of the standard pop culture touch point for that. Um yeah. I, I I find it a really fascinating lost cause era of history where it was pointless. Uh, these people were willing to die for something that half of them didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really interesting period. Um, they were they were driven by family and clan and uh, a lot of... It's, a re- it's, just, it's a really fascinating to watch how existing social dynamics can propel people into situations they don't want to be in, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are... It's hard to find good books on uh, the Jacobite Rebellion. Uh, Osprey has a few. Uh, Murray Pitt's Culloden is very uh, Murray Pittock's Culloden is very good. Um, and then a new history of the Forty Five Rebellion. And there are like three or four Jacobite rebellions, so mm-hmm. you can kind of pick which one you want to read about and just go with um, it. and go with it. Um, mm-hmm. Or just Rob's Rob Roy. It's like it's kind of the same. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll get everything you need. It's fine. Right. Um, and then my third one is I love the Cold War, but specifically mm. Cold War spies. Mm. Like I am all about Cold War espionage in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, that early era, stealing secrets, clandestine drops, uh, not quite the, the 70s and later it becomes, but that John le Carre, uh really tense uh, spy stuff. Um, and there's some, there's some really great books on that. Uh, Cold War Espionage is a fantastic book. Um, there's lots of declassified military papers you can just read about it, interviews with people who are there. You can buy my RPG Cold Shadows, which is about Cold War Espionage, subtle plug, get again. Um, <laughs> right? I feel bad. I'm like, buy my stuff, and I'm here shilling, but also I'm here shilling. <laughs> no, you came on to talk about historical gaming, which you did a lot. So you did not just come on to plug your game. So yeah, you've done a good yeah. job balancing that. <laughs> oh, yes. sorry. Yeah. But if you buy a few of my games, it would be appreciated. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, you know, those are kind of my three areas. Cool. 
Awesome. Well, I I don't have three, but um, the <laughs> time frame that always fascinated me has always been um, the kind of the 20s era when they had like prohibition and stuff like that. There's just so much that I think you can do to play with that. So uh, my dad was a huge history buff, so I would talk to him about it. But for the most part, I would rather play fantasy. So, But there are a lot of things like back in Alan, watch your face. <laughs> there are a lot of... Uh, things you can do i think with like ancient greece and rome around that time too I, i'm fascinated by that mythology and all of that too so uh yeah awesome okay so um real quick lightning round since we're running out of time alan if you could have a beer with one celebrity from the past not celebrity but one historical figure who would it be this was not in the uh, notes so you're on the, the marquis de lafayette okay awesome he's fascinating because he was in three different revolutions yeah and arguably the only one he was successful in was the American Revolution. I was like, I know that name because of Hamilton. So. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> awesome. He saw all the big revolutions. He saw American all the way through the, like, the French Revolution mm-hmm. that occurs in Les Mis in the 1930s. Like, he saw three different French revolutions. Yeah. Huh. Like, he's fascinating. There's a new book called Hero of Two Worlds that's out about him. You should read it. Cool. Noted. Awesome. Tristan, you, go. Uh, it's a really unoriginal answer, but I'm going to have to say Genghis Khan. Uh, just the the fact that we talk so much about, you know, oh, yeah, he conquered the world, blah, blah, blah. But, like, the bulk of his life was not spent on that. The bulk of his life was spent on uniting these 10,000 fractious clans and nations of the Eastern Steppe. Um, Eastern in what part of the Steppe it is. Um, and like that's insane that's that's absolutely insane and like the mm-hmm. the 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 the, pol- the politics required to do something like that like yeah man i'd i'd love to 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 pluck his brain um oh, yeah. pick pick his brain that's that's the phrase i'd love to pick yeah, his there brain you go. <laughs> i was like pluck it that too that's fine it's like an instrument richard if you had uh, one person you could have a beer with, who would it be? Probably Isaac Newton, because he was kind of crazy, and I would mm-hmm. love to. I would love to hear some random shit he didn't write down. Just yeah. that's pretty much about it. <laughs> oh yeah, mine would be Leonardo da Vinci for probably the same reason. I think that he had so many things that he did that I think that that would have been a fascinating person to have a beer with. So cool. All right. Well, uh, to wrap it up. Um, can can I, uh, I I apologize? I'm going to be even more obnoxious about the shilling. Can I take a minute <laughs> to talk about Shanty Hunters? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Shanty Hunters is a tabletop role playing game about collecting magical sea shanties in the year 1880. Uh, mm-hmm. It will be coming to Kickstarter in November. Uh, you can follow the link in the show notes mm-hmm. uh, to learn more about it uh, and to sign up to be notified. Uh, it, the premise of the game is that you play as, uh, people who are obsessed with writing down sea shanties. The age of sail is coming to a close. Sea shanties, these, these wonderful, beautiful work songs of the sailing trade will surely be lost as steam replaces sail unless somebody writes them down. The Mm -hmm. problem is every time the PCs write down one of these sea shanties, it comes to life. And the imagery and events in the song, in the lyrics, begin to play out on your ship. So if the shanty is talking about all this, you know, weird and awful stuff, the weird and awful stuff is now happening on your ship. And it is up to you to deal with it. And it is up to you uh, to save the ship and to make it right. Um, And 
Uh, it is an enormous amount of fun. Uh, I strongly encourage uh, groups to sing the shanties that they are documenting around the table because yeah. if you're all together with your friends around the table anyway, and you're the you know you're you're all the, the GM is handing out these uh, the, these 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 handouts with the shanty lyrics on them because the lyrics are of exceptional importance because that's mm -hmm. the thing, right? So you got to have it you're all going to have these handouts anyway. Like, yeah, man, sing it with your friends. It doesn't matter yeah. if you're no good at singing because mm -hmm. these are rough workman like songs. Uh, this is not Ave Maria. It does not matter if you are in tune. Mm -hmm. um, it uses the uh, award-winning gumshoe engine uh, from Pelgrane press. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it is an enormous amount of fun. It is my, uh, as a, as a, a former Navy man, it is my love letter to, uh, to, to seamen and sailors and, and the maritime profession. Um, and uh, it's great. And you should back it on Kickstarter and you should go to the link in the show notes to learn more about it and sign up to be notified when the Kickstarter drops. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I would totally, my friends that I play with, we would absolutely sing them. So that sounds yes, really cool. Yes, do it. Awesome. Alrighty. So um, to wrap it up, we wanted to talk about reviews. So Richard, if you would like to, I will pass it over to you to talk about um, our new review and how people can leave us reviews. All right. So we got one new review on iTunes. Uh, it's from Redundant Elid. E-L-I-D-E. I'm gonna be terrible pronouncing it, pronouncing that. Uh, Elide. Hmm? Elide. Elide. Mm -hmm. uh, the full FMRPG show and the crew keep this old grog grognard happy. They utilize a contemporary lens to examine many of the idiosyncratics, uh, idiosyncratic, yeah, of of the my oldest hobby. Keep up the good work and learn how to pronounce things. No, that was me <laughs> adding parenthetically. Uh, learn how to read, uh, but. Thank you very much. Uh, please uh, go review us where you listen. Uh, iTunes is kind of the biggest, uh, biggest in the land. But uh, if you find a place and review us and tell us where you were, if we, because I really only check iTunes, even though I don't listen there. Uh, <laughs> please tell us and we will read it. Uh, uh, we even made a t-shirt with our bad reviews on it. So <laughs> yes, we are proud of every review. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll read it even if it's not nice. <laughs> right. And then we will tell you where to go. But yeah. tell us where we should go. Uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, just kind of finishing this up. We have a new email. FullMetalRPGBiz at gmail.com. I have... Also, return Full Metal RPG has returned to Instagram. There's nothing there yet, but soon there will be. Uh, as Full Metal RPG, once again on uh, uh, on there, and then I have also released our sweet new T-shirt. So I'm going to transition over so nobody can see our face faces. But uh, sweet new T-shirt. Uh, Wolfmungus uh, did the uh, the main art, and then Doomscribe did our brand new. Uh, uh, logo that you see at the beginning and end of the show and our kind of icons as I'm replacing them. Uh, it's a sweet uh, orc stomping on top of a cop car shooting zombies with what looks like comets ending the world in the background. So 
it's a sweet shirt. I just put it up, so I'm ordering mine after this. So there's a discount for the next uh, few days. So anyway, uh, Ashley, I think we've done awesome. a show. <laughs> I think we've done a show. All right. So once again, every two weeks, we can catch us streaming live on our Twitch channel at 8 p.m. Arizona time. So it's a late night, which is why it's all dark here, because it's dark here. So uh, yeah. You can find us on the Discord. We're pretty active in there chatting with everyone. So if you go to our link tree, which I believe are also going to be in the show notes. Yes, the link tree is always in the show notes. Find all the things, all the things. Mm -hmm. Yep, we've got all of our social medias on there. So go ahead and follow us at any of those. And uh, like I said, the Discord is pretty active. We like to talk to people about stuff on there. Um, Alan, where can we find you? Yeah, um, you can find me at, at Alan Barr on Twitter, uh, Alan Barr writes on Facebook, gallantnightgames.com, a bunch of social media for Gallant Night Games. Awesome. And Tristan, where can we find you? So I'm uh, at Molten Sulphur on Twitter. I am Molten Sulphur on Facebook. Uh, but the best way uh, to keep track of what's going on is at the Molten Sulphur blog at moltensulphur.com. Uh, every, every Tuesday been doing this four years have not missed an update yet nice wow congrats consistency. <laughs> good job awesome all right well i think that is a show thank you guys so much for joining us and talking about this um it definitely your passion for history showed which was awesome so it was really nice talking to you about gaming and history in general and with that we will sign off thank you all for joining us and listening and watching however you're doing that and we will see you in two weeks Rah. <laughs>